Today, I talk with Lee Alexander, physical therapist, Irish dancer, and someone who's been living with long COVID for the last couple of years. In our discussion, we discuss what her experience has been like and how it is affecting her as a dancer. We talk about things that can impact people to perhaps increase risk of developing long COVID, ways that we need to consider working with folks with long COVID to make sure that we're treating them appropriately. She gives some wonderful resources that everybody can use, whether you're a clinician or someone who maybe thinks they're dealing with long COVID. And then also some really good suggestions for the dance community to continue to support dancers who want to return to dance after they've had a COVID infection or now are dealing with long COVID. This is a great conversation, so be sure to check it out. Welcome to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight. My name is Alyssa Arms. Today, I'm very excited about my guest. Lee Alexander is a physical therapist, an Irish dancer, and someone who has been living with long COVID. So as you may guess it, that is sort of the topic for today. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for joining me. So to get us started, let's just get a little bit more information about you. Tell me about, I guess, sort of your dance journey, first of all. Right on. So I've been an Irish dancer primarily for about 28, nearly 29 years. Um, I've dabbled in other sorts of dances, but moving my arms and my legs at the same time at this point is frankly very confusing. So I choose to stick with legs only with Irish. Um, that kind of brought me to physical therapy actually, because I had hurt myself so much with dance that I needed something to kind of make me feel better and make my feet actually work the way that they should. So mm -hmm. while I was in physical therapy for that, I kind of realized that, you know, helping people out all the time, having a job where you move around a ton sounded like a really good time. So that's how I got into physical therapy. Um, I graduated with my degree in 2019, uh, dancing the whole way through. And since then I've treated dancers. I, that's kind of where I specialize. Um, I have presented at IADAMS once and I'll be there with you this fall. Yes. Uh, and I've just been working kind of towards integrating dance population needs with what I've been seeing in people with long COVID and what I've been seeing with my general kind of population ortho sports needs. Mm -hmm. So now, if you will, share a bit about your experience with long COVID. So I got COVID in 2020, December of 2020. Uh, so right before the vaccine started rolling out and we hit, you know, second week in January and I still wasn't getting better. Um, there were days that were better days that were worse, but there were new weird symptoms coming on. I didn't have it again, but things were starting to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Luckily I had, I knew of some people who were having the long hauler issues. So I managed to reach out to them and they have really helped me a lot through all of this. Um, but I've been struggling with it now for, well, since December of 2020. I have a lot of various symptoms. Something about long COVID is that it's really highly variable. What I have might be very different than what somebody else has, but even though it's from the same disease or illness. The things that I struggle with the most are cardiac issues, brain fog, um, fatigue, 
And something that really influences my ability to dance is so far if I'm, we actually just found out that I'm still doing this more than I thought I was. Um, I, my oxygen levels in my blood tend to drop um, whenever I'm doing any activity, whether it's walking, whether it's dancing. Um, initially they would drop down into the low seventies with dance. The last time I checked, which was about two months ago, um, they were still dropping down into the uh, high 70s with maybe less than a minute of dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for people, you know, if you're not part of the medical field or know sort of what normal is for oxygen levels, kind of depending on where you're at altitude wise, um, you know, we're typically liking, you know, bare minimum 88, 90 even above 92 um, out of 100% um, oxygen is really what we're looking for, sort of that ideal normal. And so being anywhere in the 70 range is significant. That's, yeah. that's not a small drop. Yeah, generally supplemental oxygen is prescribed if you're at rest around like, I think it's what, 92, depending again, altitude wise. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in Ohio, so like, 92-ish around us, 90-ish at rest. Yeah. Um, and then obviously with exercise, you're allowed to go down a little bit more, but you shouldn't be dropping 20%. Right, right. Tell me, let's see. I guess, tell me a little bit about what this now has meant for you as a dancer dealing with low COVID, long COVID. I know you've already kind of talked a bit about symptoms, but tell me more about what that experience has been for you. So honestly, it's been rough. It's very difficult to have something that you've kind of been able to push through anything else for stripped away from you in a way that it can cause long-term issues if you kind of keep trying. Like I've danced through broken bones, through surgeries, through things that I definitely shouldn't have danced through. Mm -hmm. But this is something that I feel like I truly don't know how to keep going with it. Um, it's not necessarily like a physical disability. Like I think a lot of physical therapists and dancers kind of go towards my joints, I think can handle the dance just fine. If I could train my cardiovascular system without crashing the next day and by crashing, I just mean basically not being able to function. Um, possibly not being able to get out of bed without having that similar oxygen issue to dance. Mm -hmm. um, this is the first time that I've really had to deal with something like that. And to try to re-identify yourself at, you know, over 30 years old, like that's not something that I necessarily had expected or was prepared for, especially being thrown into it like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you a choice. There's no alternate. It just, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really important element for us to consider as people in the healthcare industry and even in the dance community itself, where, you know, sometimes these things come up, whether it's long COVID or some other health issue over time, dance is so much one of those things where, especially if you got involved as a kid, it is so ingrained in your identity. And so what happens when that is no longer, a, you know, a good option for you, or you need to drastically modify in order to con continue to be part of that community. And I think we need to be better in any of those cases about helping people through that transition and providing support, making sure that people don't feel like they're alone going through all of that. And especially dealing with like, let's kind of face it, the ableism of the dance world. Like 
especially for Irish dance, like our, the organization that I danced through mainly has been in the center of a lot of hot water recently for various reasons. Um, but to take their teaching exam, to be able to be a teacher, you have to pass these exams, like the pre-test exams. Mm -hmm. And for those, you traditionally have to be able to dance. And I was supposed to take one of my last ones of those when I, like literally three weeks after I got COVID. Jeez. And when it became obvious that like, I was not gonna be able to do that then, I didn't know at the time that it was gonna be a long-term thing, but I had messaged them and be like, and been like, hey, you know, I'm just coming out of COVID. I'm not, you know, contagious anymore, but can I talk through, is there some other way for me to prove that I know this information? And their answer was basically no. And to the best of my knowledge, that has not changed. And it's been almost, what, three or four years. Mm -hmm. Like the dance community needs to evolve. And that's, I think, a common theme and something that the dance community does not readily do. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the dance communities are very steeped in their tradition. And tradition definitely has its place and is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes sometimes we need to modify a little bit too. Um, yeah. And this is a perfect example of that idea. Um, let's see. I know you're part of a couple of different organizations and platforms and communities as far as Long COVID Physio and the Long COVID Alliance. Tell us more about those groups. So Long COVID Physio is a, an international group of uh, physical therapists, physiotherapists um, from kind of all over. I mean, obviously with international, sorry. Um, and we are mostly people who are living with long COVID or long haulers. Um, we kind of call ourselves with long haulers, but as we kind of produce more research, I've been seeing more and more use of the term people with long COVID. Um, this group is trying to advocate for people with long COVID and is actually becoming one of the best resources for anyone with long COVID, not just physical therapists or physios with it, um, which has been a really cool mm -hmm. thing to kind of watch. It all started as a Facebook group and then it just has grown exponentially from there. Mm -hmm. um, the Long COVID Alliance is more, still I would say patient-centered and patient-run to the best of my knowledge. Um, but it is more of a group of companies, individuals, and organizations who are all focused on adapting to this new reality mm -hmm. and kind of seeing where we need to meet people and where we're gonna go in the future. Mm -hmm. Both of them kind of share that goal and they both have great resources for patients. Um, I think that Long COVID Alliance may be working more towards advocacy. Long COVID Physio, I know that that's something that is in their goals, mm -hmm. but I don't, that wasn't, I, I think that Long COVID Alliance is trying to do it more on a grand scale versus patient and physio kind of focus. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen a lot of information come, you know, primarily through the physio group, since that's our area of practice. But I mean, by far, I think that's some of you know, the biggest volume of information for healthcare providers about long COVID and long haulers um, that I've seen. And I've been able to learn so much from all of that. And I think it's, it's 
excellent to have that resource and particularly pulling from people who have been experiencing it themselves. That is such an important driver for it. I know my mom is actually a um, brain injury survivor and she's involved in some different groups that are kind of a similar, you know, a lot of people who are dealing with it themselves or their family members who are maybe caregivers getting involved in some of those conversations. And she started a blog just talking about her experience. Um, shameless plug for her. It's called Brain Fairy. Um, and she gets so much traffic from people there who are like, this sounds like what I'm experiencing, or I couldn't put words to it. And you just did in that blog. And it's been so cool seeing that. And so knowing that, you know, some of those same kinds of things are coming up for this new disease and disease process that has only been in our world for a few years now. Um, it's, it's good to see that some of that is coming along. Definitely. And I think that it's important to remember that like, even though long COVID is kind of, is definitely new, less new, but still new comparatively. Um, there have been people that have been affected by, you know, sequelae of other infections for years. There was a uh, post-polio syndrome, which was something that didn't necessarily have to start at that polio infection, but could in fact come like, you know, 40 years later. Right. Um, even like influenza and stuff, there are a lot of people who have like the ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, who the people with long COVID who are experiencing similar symptoms, we're looking to a lot of them for advice and lived experience. And luckily they are being really nice to us and really re great resources for us, even though we're kind of the self-centered kind of new group because there's so many of us and we're all really confused. Right. And the other part to remember that I just remembered in, um, oh, that long COVID is patient driven. Like so much of it has been because research takes years to come out. Mm -hmm. So we don't have studies to look at to know like a lot of what we're doing is trial and error. And the patient voices are really important. And I think that's something cool that both Long COVID Alliance and Long COVID Physio really focus on. Sorry, there's a bug. <laughs> um, they really focus on those patient voices and lifting each other up even if we don't have necessarily good experiences in the medical community or in our work communities or in our pastime communities. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What are some things, so I know there's a lot that we still don't know about long COVID, both the disease itself, the sequelae that come from it, how we treat it. But what are some things that we do know at this point, whether it's risk factors or ways that we treat it or, you know, advice we give people? There are a couple different things that are coming out. Um, a lot of the major hospital systems, like I work for Cleveland Clinic, so that's the one that I know the best, um, have what are called like recover clinics, like with the COV and like caps, mm -hmm. uh, because we're nothing if not punny. Right. <laughs> they have been around since the beginning and they're starting to open up. I think UPenn has one maybe. Mm -hmm that are starting to open up to non-internal referrals because there were initially so many people who needed it. And I think there still are a lot of people that need it. Um, and it's great that they're starting to lower these barriers. The question of if they're effective, kind of hit and miss. I know that mm -hmm. the Cleveland Clinic 
just did something that they're really excited about and that I'm really excited about because it's not something that I've seen a lot of progress being made towards. Um, for loss of taste and loss of smell, they just did a procedure mm. on a woman and it gave her back her, oh my God. Sorry. It gave her back her sense of smell for the first time in three years. And that is so cool because I know so many people who are suffering from that. And yeah. I was lucky enough, knock on wood, never to have that factor of it. But it seems to definitely be one that sticks around and that we don't really have anything to control because it's so it's such a different symptom. Like if you get the flu, you don't lose your sense of smell. As far as COVID, as, as far as long COVID itself goes, there's a couple of different kind of theories right now. The most favored one is the theory of microclots, which kind of goes along with how we think that COVID works right now mm -hmm. and how we think it can affect so many systems. Like COVID and long COVID can affect neural systems, musculoskeletal systems, um, cardiac, so your heart, pulmonary, uh, pulmonology, so like your lungs, mm -hmm. they can affect so many different systems. So it has to be something that's not a single kind of track. So I've used to just think it was a lung issue and now it's becoming very obvious it's not. Right. Um, so microclots are definitely, I think, the most favored explanation at the moment. Again, it's still new. So don't quote me on that in like two years, it might not be right. Uh, we also think that inflammatory levels in the, the body just go haywire and that might be because of the clotting, it might be because of, it's just the way that COVID works. We'll kind of, again, see that I think over the next couple of years and kind of get an explanation for that, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, the... As far as treatments go, it's kind of symptom-based right now. Um, so for instance, I know that a study is literally going to come out. It is accepted and they just dropped the digital preprint, I think like 12 days ago. Mm -hmm. So like early May in 2023, that they're trying for the fatigue, some cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And they're really kind of introducing that with ideas of pacing. Pacing is probably the best thing that individual patients can do for themselves. Um, the study itself for the cognitive behavioral therapy type of thing, it was a small study. I think there were like 53 participants, if I want, if I remember correctly. And even the authors admit like, you know, we're one study, we're not that big, like this needs more looking at, but their kind of interactions really helped with people's fatigue. Mm -hmm. So it'll be cool to see if that's something that's generalizable or not. Yeah. As far as the other symptoms go pacing, like I said earlier, kind of is the thing that I send all my patients home with. What I mean by pacing is, and shameless plug, there's going to be a poster on the Sadai Adams this year. Excellent. Um, pacing is a way to kind of dole out your energy levels through the day and to meet yourself where you're at. So like we all wake up in the morning and we have these grand aspirations like, oh, I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna do, you know, I'm gonna read the morning paper, I'm gonna go for a two mile jog, I'm gonna do all this stuff. All of that stuff takes energy. Even showering, showering, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, all mm -hmm. of that takes a certain amount of energy. And with long COVID and the kind of things that come with it, whether it's heart issues, whether it's 
vision changes, headaches, they seem to get worse if you try to push through them. So unlike a lot of, I think a lot of us think about physical injuries, oh, we're just going to push through, which isn't right. great either, but that's fine. We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> this pacing really has you take a step back and try to assess where you're at and what you can do on a certain day. I the theory that I give a lot of my patients, although I know the creator isn't the biggest fan of us still using it, is the spoon theory, um, which is basically each activity takes a certain amount of spoons and you wake up with a certain amount of spoons every day. Some days the amounts of spoons from the previous day carry over if you didn't use up all of them. Some days they don't. Um, so say you wake up with 20 spoons. Brushing your teeth takes a spoon. Having a shower takes three spoons or four spoons. Ha getting dressed takes four spoons. Putting on your makeup, doing your hair, that does another, you know, five or six spoons. At the end of that, you're, you've eaten up through like half of your energy for the day and you still have to go to work. You still have to dance. You still have to do all of this stuff without the spoons for it. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you run out of that energy is either you push through and you are going to pay the consequences for it or you stop and you risk letting people down and you risk letting yourself down. And I think that's what I struggle with a lot. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to feel like I'm letting my patients down. I don't want to feel like I'm letting my friends down who I dance with. Um, just that idea of pacing, I feel like is so much better than what the reality is. Mm -hmm. The reality is that it is extraordinarily hard and that oftentimes, especially us as dancers with like that, just, you know, push through it mentality. Right. We end up making ourselves worse. And even us physical therapists with our push through it mentality, <laughs> we end up making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the case of the show must go on. Oh. This is a, we need to modify some stuff here mm -hmm. to make things happen. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think that pacing concept is such an incredibly important one because so often, especially coming from a background like physical therapy, there's this idea of, well, maybe if we have graded exposure, graded exercise, where like there's a certain way where if we, we push it enough and we expose you to this stuff enough, like your body's going to adjust and it'll be fine. That is not the case in this situation. This is a, we need to modify and prioritize and all of that sort of thing. This is not a, if we push it in the right way, it'll be fine. Exactly. And that's something that both, I think, the individual and the dance community needs to kind of start taking into account. Because, I mean, they should have already started. Long COVID is just the biggest, I'd say, disabling event in recent years. Like, mm -hmm. there are still dancers who have, you know, Ehlers-Danlos or GI issues where, like, they still have to apply these same principles but I feel like we just haven't been adapting to them either. And this is just kind of the, okay, well, you didn't learn from the small lesson. So now we're going to punch you in the face with the lesson. Mm -hmm. Like This is, I did the numbers and granted these numbers are going to be a little bit off because I did the lowest end of the spectrum. It's estimated, it's estimated that about 10 to 50% of the people who get COVID going to get long COVID in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be, like I said, kind of multi-presenting. Um, not all the states are still, I would say more than half the states are actually still not following their COVID numbers or reporting their COVID numbers or their COVID mm -hmm. death numbers. So the number is going to be a little bit off here. But right now, 
there are about 1.1 million people in the United States alone who are no longer with us due to COVID. Mm -hmm. There are over 103 million cases of COVID, like confirmed cases. And that doesn't count like the at-home tests that didn't tell anybody. That doesn't count like anything. So that is 103 million. So if I take that 10% number and take out the people who died, you are still over 10 million people who are now possibly disabled. Mm -hmm. And chances are that there are going to be people who are in your dance studio or are in your clinic who have this and they may not be there because of it, but you're going to have to deal with the fact that they're dealing with it and you're going to have to know how to adapt for them. Definitely. Thinking about long COVID in our dance community, what are some things that you think would be helpful for studio owners or dance company owners or whomever, you know, kind of is in charge of how things work within their organization? What are some things that they could do to maybe be more supportive for folks dealing with long haulers? I think that flexibility is going to be a huge thing. Um, if people, and it's also, it's very hard, but ironically we need it to dance. So that's hilarious, but we need to be able to meet people where they're at. If you have a day of rehearsal scheduled and you are trying to like get people in 10 hours and then you know they're going to have a competition the next day or you know they're going to have a performance the next day where you expect them to be at their best. Right. First of all, that didn't work to begin with, but it's definitely not going to work with long haulers and you're going to end up with people who are calling in sick, people who are passing out on stage, needing to call EMS. Like mm -hmm. you're going to have issues. You may already be having issues. Um, I think kind of blocking practice is a kind of a, the easiest way. So instead of, you know, having a blocked practice where you expect somebody to go for four hours and they're just kind of standing on the sides and practicing at the bar when they're not actually dancing, they need to be able to sit and decompress, whether it's a room that you have that they can just go and get the heck out of the studio and the heck like that's dark and doesn't have stimuli. So like things mm -hmm. that are coming in and like making them think, making them do things, um, making them talk. That I think may be the easiest way. And that could even be done at competitions and stuff. And that way kids can actually go to their competition and then not be overwhelmed by the time they get to awards. Mm-hmm. I think that um, understanding that kids shouldn't bounce back. You had asked about risk factors before. One of the biggest risk factors for long COVID is trying to do too much too quickly. Um, everybody always says like, oh, get your rest, get your rest. And I don't think any of us really mean it. They're like, there gets a point where you're like, okay, it's been like three weeks, you, you're done resting, you need to get back to it. With COVID, that's not how it works. Um, with a lot of things, that's not how it works. But again, focusing on COVID, uh, it's not how it works. So really having as flexible deadlines as you can for these people. Mm -hmm. We've always needed, you know, backup dancers. We may need more than one at this point. Like we may a couple different people who can all fill one role more than just one person who's kind of afloat even two people who are kind of afloat which sucks because it's more expensive for the production depending or it takes more room or it takes hauling more people out to the competition but it is going to give you the best chance of not having somebody feel like they're disappointing you or making themselves physically ill 
trying mm -hmm. to meet these expectations. Yeah. The other part is if you do have a show on performance, how do you deal? And honestly, I feel like the application of pacing isn't studied enough in dance or others. Like mm -hmm. we know that it's good. We know that it works, but a lot of people who are in these studies don't have full-time jobs, aren't relying on going on stage to pay for their home and their food. Um, and yeah, it's just, we need to work on the ableism of not only our dance culture, but like our culture at large, because it all kind of stems back to, we expect everybody to be able to perform at a hundred percent all of the time. Mm -hmm. And long COVID is a really aggressive way of teaching people that that doesn't work. Yeah. I think something that you hit on that definitely applies in this circumstance with long COVID, but I think just in general is I think, you know, speaking back to adapting within the dance community from at the beginning of our conversation, I think teachers, studio owners, convention owners, whomever is in charge, company directors, allowing some more flexibility and allowing people to be human mm -hmm. is so incredibly important. And, you know, things like, you know, I've, I've heard stories from dancers who've gone on stage and danced with broken bones because they were the one person who was cast for this major role and it's you know it's right before the show and the company director asks them to perform or dancers who have been preparing for recital or competition and they're injured and they decide you know i think i can just push through this because that's the expectation and then they end up worse for wear on the tail end of it because they've pushed when in fact you know, it would have been a smarter decision to sit out, even though that is a challenging thing. I think not placing so much pressure on the dancers, on the performers to constantly need to just be there and do all the things that we ask of them. We, we need to be more flexible with that, more considerate and empathetic and I don't know, lots of words that can go in there, but um, we, we definitely can do better in general with a lot of this. Luckily, I am seeing some studios, you know, that I work with or some of the conventions doing better with things like this. Like last year, I had the opportunity to work with Doctors for Dancers when they were on site with a couple of conventions. And one of the conventions actually set up even a quiet room that where the lights were out, except for, you know, one little one in the corner. And it was as quiet as you could get in a convention hotel with pillows and, you know, different things like that. And I think they had disposable earplugs around for people to be able to open up a packet if they wanted to use those. So, you know, just being able to see some of those things starting to change is making me hopeful, but we definitely still have work to do in general on all of that. Absolutely. And going back to one of the things that you brought up, I think that, yeah, you're exactly right. We need to stop kind of this glorification of injury or illness or like, oh, I pushed through a broken leg to be here eight weeks later. First of all, I don't know that you actually broke your leg to do that, but because um, I'm like that, that I don't think that's how that works with anatomy and everything, but okay. Um, but like even things like glorifying coming to practice after you've been in a car accident. Like there was a teacher that I know of who this kid got in an accident that totaled the family car that they were in and they still came to practice and the teachers were holding them up on this pedestal and like glorifying oh, you're pushing through this ankle sprain or are you really hurt? Like nobody wants to fake. Okay, that's not accurate. Some people do want to fake this, but 
there's only so much you can do and you can't act like everybody is trying to because then you're actually going to hurt people. Right. Um, and honestly, even now, like having people tell you that, oh, you know, you have to put your health first, prioritize your health. And then when you actually do, you're criticized for it. Like that is something that I think is really rampant in the dance world. Mm-hmm. It's rampant everywhere, but like it is glorified in the dance world. Mm-hmm. Like to the point where I don't think that dancers even really know how to be honest with themselves about how they're feeling. Yes. And that's one thing that long COVID teaches you more than injuries because injuries, again, a lot of them, even, you know, broken bones, you can push through to a certain extent. You're going to hurt yourself, but you are physically able to. Mm-hmm. This, your body will, sh- if it doesn't shut you down that day, it's going to shut you down the day after. And you're going to miss other things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. So kind of learning how to check in with yourself and actually know how you're feeling and not just wanting to please your teacher or wanting to, you know, be there for your teammates. Mm -hmm. And it sucks not being able to be there for your teammates. And like, sometimes I think even like a video feed into class, like we all got to Zoom. Y'all know how to do it. Like get a video camera in class now, even if they're not physically there, even if they can't get the energy to like, drive there or to dance, they can at least feel like they're there and they can at least, it opens it up to, for them to participate in some way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think it would be really interesting to look at, you know, do research maybe to see how dancers handle long COVID and some of the perceptions around it. Just thinking of even, you know, I I recently had a really good reminder looking at some research about the ideas of pain threshold and pain perception in dancers where, you know, looking at dancers versus non-dancers or non-athletes, dancers need more of that sort of pain stimulus to even recognize that they have pain in the first place. And then they have a higher threshold before they say, okay, this is really bad. I need to stop. So if we already know that just from a pain perspective, I'm curious how it is with other symptom recognition, perception, all of that, especially in a condition like this with long COVID. Absolutely. I think that that would be some very interesting research to do. And like, it kind of plays into that. Looking at, um, nope, lost where I was going. I'm so sorry. That's all right. Brain fog, gotta love it. Right. Um, Oh, but it also plays into kind of we can't talk about it without bringing it up at some point, but the pol- the politics of being of long COVID, because there are a lot of people that don't want to hear about it still affecting you or, oh, COVID's over or, oh, is that still your problem? Or aren't you feeling mm-hmm. better yet? There are so many things that like that that brings out because kind of playing into the pain perception thing. I think part of it is it doesn't hurt. And part of it is even when it does hurt, we don't want to admit that it hurts. Right. Like we're trained to make everything look easy. And this is something that it's kind of impossible to make it look super easy. Um, Because you don't want to let people down by giving an honest answer of how you might be feeling or perceive that you let people down because you won't. Um, and you also kind of don't want to admit it to yourself. And I think that people can be very dismissive of it for whether they think COVID's over, whether they think whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to dismiss it than to recognize that something is a chronic condition just because it's invisible. Yeah. 
Yes. I think there's a lot that we as a medical community still need to learn about all of this. Patients and family and whomever is, you know, sort of the the care system, support system with folks. There's a lot that we all need to figure out too. Um, and clearly the community, the world in general <laughs> needs to better figure out how to support folks, but also the dance community more specifically, because like you said, odds are good that there is a decent chunk of dancers out there, whether they're professionals or dancers in training, who are dealing with this. And much like all the other things, they are putting on a good show or attempting to mm -hmm. um, and trying to live up to all of the expectations. So we need to figure out how to support them better. Absolutely. And I think just let them know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Like there have been so many people that I've talked to at conferences and at um, even just locally, like at my job, at the coffee store, at the archery range that I talk to. And I start talking because I think I've been in the chronic illness community for a long time now, like over 10 years in some way, shape or form. Um, I try to be more open because I know what it felt like being alone. And I want other people to know that there are resources out there for them. And I feel like it's so easy to feel like you're alone and you're the only person going through this and be scared to admit it to yourself and be scared to admit it to your teachers or your doctors or your parents even. And sometimes going into these communities, like whether it's long COVID physio, there's a bunch of other like Facebook groups. There's a TikTok hashtag for it. You can find mm -hmm. them. Um, going into these communities, I think there's a great sense in realizing that you're not alone. And that's what I think that the dance community is playing off of right now is that fear of these dancers to admit that they can't do things or these teachers to admit that they can't do things. Like I worked, I had uh, somebody that I ran into at work who, it wasn't a patient, it was just somebody that like came in, I think it might have been like a sales, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, and we were talking and the person was like telling me about how they've had a bunch of headaches increasing their vision has been really spotty and then we were just talking and they said that they had gotten over covid like right before all this started and i was like hey do you think it might be connected and they shut it down like immediately i think people are scared mm -hmm. to kind of acknowledge that it's still there and still affecting them yeah because yeah honestly it's not a pleasant thought we don't know where this is gonna be in 10 or 15 years. It's important to kind of take care of yourself now and adapt yes. now when you can, rather than paying for it later. We all mm -hmm. love dance. We all wanna still be here. You mm -hmm. said that it has wonderful traditions. We do. And I really want us to have a great future and a good present too. Yeah, definitely. All right, this takes us to a special segment. The final bow is your opportunity to give us your parting thoughts. What's the one thing you want the audience to leave with, if nothing else, from our conversation today? So my biggest thing that I want you guys to get from today is to listen to what people tell you that they're feeling and don't punish them for it. Don't kill them. Don't do stamina the second they get back from being ill. You might make them develop long COVID and you're going to make it worse if they already have it. 
And also don't use graded exercise and your people coming back from COVID. I'm going to haunt you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's a wonderful final message for everybody. What are some things that you are involved with that you would like to plug to everyone, whether it's an organization that you work with or something that you have coming up personally, anything you want to share? My shameless plug to people is we'll be, there'll be some long COVID stuff and some dancer identity stuff that I'm doing at uh, I Adams this year. So the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science um, at their annual meeting in Columbus in October. Um, myself and one of my colleagues are also doing a an introduction to Irish dance there. So you should totally come see us together. We have like over 40 years of experience and she's a teacher and we've been dancing together for as long as I've been dancing. So like 28 years. So like it's been, it, it's going to be a fun time. Uh, the other thing is Long COVID Physio, Long COVID Alliance, hit them up. Um, I know that Alyssa's going to put my socials on here. If you have, if you're confused, if you have questions, reach out. Like we will take the time. Like, and if I can't answer your questions, I'll connect you to somebody who can. That's the wonderful thing about this type of stuff is like, we all are learning together. And if I don't know what chances are, somebody else might have an idea of where it is or what it is. Well, if you're looking for any of that information that Lee was just describing, whether it's how to contact her or links to some of the different organizations that will be available in the video description and audio descriptions and all of that kind of stuff too, to make it easy to get to those different resources. Thank you so much, Lee, for being my guest today. And I look forward to seeing you at iAdams in Columbus. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited for you to come to Ohio. Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. The Dance Med Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.